For those of you who do not know me, my name is Lauren Crandall, and just a regular guy here serves with you guys. And if you're visiting for the first time, I just want to say welcome. And I want to let you know that we've been going through the Book of Romans for the last couple of weeks, though last week we took a break. And um, I trust that you've been enjoying the study uh, like I have and hearing from the different guys who've come up each week and have been able to share with us. And so this week I'm going to be looking at Romans chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 25, 6, and 7. And I will be addressing this question with you today. How do I know what is true? Or how do we know what is true? But before we get over to Romans 11, so if you want to start turning that way, I just want to do a quick review to catch up to where we've come so far. As we know, the author of Romans is the Apostle Paul, and it was written around A.D. 57. And it was written to Jewish believers, the descendants of Abraham, and to Gentile believers as well. Just five years earlier, the Jewish believers were expelled from Rome, and they were starting to come back. And because of that, there was tension that was mounting in the church around laws and what was acceptable to eat and was circumcision necessary. So Paul writes the book of Romans to bring unity to the church in Rome. He writes in the fullest detail, the fullest expression of the gospel and the good news about Jesus' life, about his death, and about his resurrection. And if we were to look at Romans as a whole, the whole book, it could be broken down something like this. Chapters 1 through 4 reveal God's righteousness and that man is sinful. And uh, Romans 3, 23 comes to mind, right? For all have sinned. If we're to look at chapters 5 through 8, they would reveal how God creates a new humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Man is now justified by faith. We now have a new status. We have, now have a new family. And we now have a new future because of Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 fulfill God's promises to Israel. Paul notes this as a mystery. And in just a little bit, I'm going to take us through what that mystery actually is. And then the last four chapters, chapters 12 through 16, talks about the unification of the church. And unification comes from serving one another. And we just uh, spoke about this in Sunday school. We're going through a new class called Compelled. And the first guy that spoke today, he was talking about servanthood. So if you're not plugged into Sunday school, here's a plug for you. Come on in at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's just a phenomenal class. So before I get to the text in Romans, I do want to give you a roadmap to where I'm going today. And I have three points that I want to discuss with you. And the first one will be this. There's a possibility that someone here today has questioned the authority and or the reliability of the Bible. Or perhaps you're struggling with a belief in God. Or you're struggling with some foundational views. I hope to demonstrate today that you can trust what is written in the Bible. My second point is to look at the mystery, and that's in verse 25, which we'll get to in just a minute. And then lastly, my third point is going to be this. We're going to look at how God reveals himself to us through his word. Historical evidence, 
and prophetic evidence will come into play today. And that both of those very much tie in together. But before we go any further, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just uh, thank you for your word. I thank you for what you put on my heart. Lord, I pray that the busyness of this week would be set aside for a few moments. And that together we could look into your word. And we'd ask that your Holy Spirit would challenge us. And then, more importantly, Lord, that it would change us. So that when we leave this facility today, we leave differently than when we came in. And I ask this in your son's name. Amen. So my first point, again, back to those in the room who may be questioning the reliability of the Bible. Perhaps you're struggling with some foundational views. And I believe it's important that I start here today. Because if you don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, if you don't believe you have a purpose, I don't believe you'll be convinced that what I'm going to share to you today out of the word of God will make a difference in your life. You see, it was written for me, it was written for you, and it was written for mankind to get to know and to serve him better. I want to establish a foundation for why we as Christ followers believe that the Bible is indeed the word of God. And I want to do this by asking you a series of questions. Questions to count for you to consider in regards to your uniqueness, which is supported in the creation story and what is written in the actual word of God. And so as I throw some questions out to you, you don't need to answer them back to me, but uh, just consider them, ponder them in your mind. So my first question, do you believe mankind was created or mankind was evolved? Creation or evolution? In the world, they say there's approximately 8.5 billion people. That's a whole lot of folks. How many yous are there? Let me say it again. How many yous are there? As far as I know, you are the only one of you, are you not? And science would support this. You have your own DNA. You have your own fingerprint. And if we were to go to a court of law, they would use that DNA or that fingerprint to find you guilty or innocent. My next question. Based on science... Does this represent chaos, such as evolution, or does it represent intelligent design? I believe you'd have to say it's intelligent design, would you not? And I hope you'd give me a little bit of ground here to say that it takes more faith to believe in happenstance than it does a creator. Because you are unique and because I am unique, this means that we are both rare and we are both valuable. And if you can agree that you're rare and that you're valuable, my next question, who are you valuable to? You're valuable to the one who created you for a purpose. And I believe science is opposed to evolution and supports the creation story. And if you can believe that you're just not happenstance, then I believe we have a very good starting point to say what was written in the scriptures is written for you and it's written for I and it's written for those that don't know Christ. So I want you to take a look at the screen here. They're going to pull up the first slide. And I just want to give you a few key verses that back up the authority behind the Bible. 
And wow, yeah, I was told I gave him the wrong size text. <laughs> so <laughs> good thing I have it written in my notes as well. So I will be sharing this with you rather than you reading some of this. But Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a creation story, six days, right? It just didn't evolve. There was someone behind it. Or Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, and he created them male and female. And man, are we hearing about gender neutralization today in our world? It just drives me nuts. But here it clearly says, God didn't make a mistake. You're either male or you're female. It's really important to know this. Psalms 139.16, your eyes saw my body before it was formed. You planned how many days I would live for. You wrote down the number of them in your book before I ever lived through even one of them. Again, God created, he created you, and he has a plan and a purpose for you. And then lastly, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you would, turn over to Romans 11 with me. And we're going to look at verses 25, 6, and 7. And follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So now I want to move on to my second point, And I want you to look at the verse 25 with me. It reads, do not be ignorant of this mystery. And it's worth repeating here that Paul is speaking to the Jewish believers and he's speaking to the Gentile believers. And history has afforded you and I to look back on time. But while this text was being written, this mystery was just being revealed to them. And in the English dictionary, the word mystery is defined as something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. However, the word mystery in the Greek has a different meaning. It's actually pronounced and this mystery is not something unknowable. Rather, it can only be known through revelation. You see, God must reveal it to us. And so the big question for the Jewish nation was, how can the gospel be for the Gentiles? Are not we the chosen ones? And this mystery goes all the way back to Genesis 22. So if you would, turn over there in your Bibles with me. Genesis 22, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 18. It reads, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of their cities, of their enemies, 
and through your offspring all the nations of earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. And what we learn from scripture is we know that Abraham, Abraham excuse me, did not withhold Isaac, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And the mystery is that all nations on earth would be blessed. The Messiah was promised. The gospel is for all. And it wasn't just for the Jews, which is great news for us here today, for, for many of us. And it's very important to note that it was not Abraham's faith that credited him to be righteous. It's not what he did. It was his faith, excuse me, that was credited as righteousness. And Paul wrote the following in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So if you would, turn back over to Romans 11. And I want to look at the second half of the verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see, because the nation of Israel rejected the Lord, their hearts were hardened. However, God had a plan, as noted in Romans 9.27. Though the number of children of Israel be as sands of the sea, a remnant will be saved. So the mystery then is how God took this negative and how he turned it into a positive, using the hardening of their hearts to open the doors for the Gentiles to come into a saving knowledge of who he is. And we're still waiting for that final prophecy to be called. And the good news is God is still calling people to repentance today until that last Gentile is called. And then that Jewish remnant will be called and we're certainly waiting for that day. So my third point I want to look at now, and is really the heart and the meat of my message, is to answer the question, how do I know what is true? And we'll answer this by question by looking at verse 26 of Romans 11. So take a look. It reads, as it is written. There is our answer. We can know the truth because it's written in the word of God. And again, remember who Paul is writing to. He was writing to the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, the descendants of Abraham. The words, as it is written, would have, would have gotten the attention of the Jewish believers. It would have taken them back to the book of Exodus, when Moses is given the law, when Moses is given the Ten Commandments, and he was given the biblical laws of Judaism. They would have understood the authoritative positioning of those words as it is written, it would have gotten their attention. And I don't know if any of you are golfers, but when you're on the golf course, there's one word that will get your attention, and that word is four, right? If you golf with me, I'll hit an errant shot, and I may take someone out. But the word four stops people. They look, they duck, they know it's there for a purpose. And so it is with these words, as it is written. And it's important to know that God reveals himself to us in four primary ways. He reveals himself to us through nature. All that God has created and dis- discloses who he is. And that is noted in Romans 1.20. He reveals himself to us through his conscience. 
the human mind and the human heart bear witness to the existence of God. Romans 2.15 comes to mind. He reveals himself through his written word. And when I just read the verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. And lastly, he reveals himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And the first two ways there are general and limited. But the second two ways that I just shared are full. They're personal and they're complete because of a relationship. And now I want to look at how God reveals himself to us through his written word by focusing on the historical and prophetic evidence that is layered throughout not only history, but throughout scripture. And it will address the question, how do I know what is true? And the historical evidence that validates the accuracy of the Bible is overwhelming. And in doing some research for this message, I came across a quote written by the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology located in Washington, D.C. And they noted the following about the Bible. And it's on slide three. I don't know if it's staying in No, it's still small. <laughs> Never mind. I'll, I'll read it from here. They noted the following about the Bible. Much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from an antiquity, and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greek histories. These biblical records are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological work. For the most part, historical evidence described took place and peoples cited really existed. And I love to go on Archaeology Today. It's a website. And there's several others. But you can actually look up what's happening over in Israel and what are, the, what are they finding today. And it's amazing. Time and time again, they're finding different things. Like, for example, Bethlehem wasn't around or known of. They could never find historical ev- evidence of it, except for the last recent uh, couple of years, they found a stamp with Bethlehem. And another article I came across was done by David Limbaugh. And if you recognize that name, his brother was Rush Limbaugh, the noted uh, radio host. But in 2014, David released a book called Jesus on Trial, which was written from a lawyer's perspective on the truth of the gospel. And he noted the following, and I quote, There's an enormous amount of evidence that the Bible is historically reliable and that that what was written by real men who were united in in their commitment to truth. So real men wrote the Bible. And his conclusion is that it is 99.5% accurate, which is just an amazing number to me. And there's another book called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And he did a similar thing. He looked at it from a lawyer's perspective. And he pulled in documents within the Bible and outside of the Bible, like the historian Josephus, to prove the case for the Bible. And so if you've never read these books, I would highly recommend that you go and get them. Another important thing to note is the quantity of New Testament manuscripts. They are unparalleled in ancient history. And a biblical manuscript is a copy of the original text. And they went to great lengths to ensure the accuracy when they copied the Bible. 
And the quantity of these manuscripts would validate the reliability. If they were not accurately written, they would have been destroyed. And to give you an idea of the quantity of manuscripts we have, there's over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. There's 8,000 Latin manuscripts. And there's another 1,000 in several other languages. And historically speaking, many of these manuscripts were written very close to the events, some within 30 years of the events. So there would have been eyewitnesses around. They would have been able to validate or say, hey, that's not correct. So that's really important. And in addition to the extraordinary number of manuscripts that we have, there's tens of thousands of quotes by early church fathers about the Bible. And in contrast, the manuscripts that we have from people such as Aristotle, Plato, Caesar, Tactius, is much, much smaller. An example would be Aristotle has a thousand manuscripts dated 1,200 years from the events with the earliest copy written AD 850. Plato's work has 210 manuscripts dated 1,200 years from the events with the earliest copy dated AD 900. Caesar's first hand of the Gallic Wars has 251 manuscripts dated 900 years from the events with the earliest copy dated AD 1000. In the Bible, here's a big number, there's over 25,000 documented manuscripts. And the key to this is, is the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, has only primary source authors. Again, they were eyewitnesses. They were there when the events took place. And there's a scholar by the name of Frederick Bruce, and he noted the following. The evidence for our New Testament writing is ever so much greater than the evidence for many of the classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be generally regarded as beyond all doubt. Pretty powerful statement. And then my last comment on the historical reliability of the Bible is that Jesus used it and quoted from it. There's 39 Old Testament books, and they say that Jesus quoted from over three-quarters of them. I find that number amazing. The Bible tells us that the, uh, the Bible was written, actually, over, uh, from 1450 to 70 A.D., and it says it was written by 40 authors. And as you read the Bible from the beginning to the end, there's one singular thread that runs through it, and that thread is God's plan to redeem mankind. It's cohesive. It's unified. And we find no discrepancies. You see, the Bible supports the historical evidence of our world, and it supports the evidence of our faith. And the next component that I want to look at is the prophetic evidences that support the Bible. There are hundreds of prophecies that we could look at. And for the sake of time, I won't keep you here all day. We're only going to look at a couple of them. But if Jesus is fake, and the Bible is just a bunch of stories made up by men, then I want you to think about a couple questions I put together surrounding Jesus' life. 
and surrounding his death and surrounding, surrounding the historical accuracy and the prophetic accuracy. So my first question to you, how did Jesus arrange to be born into a specific family? And this was written 600 years before he was born, as noted in 2 Samuel. It reads, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Or my second question, how did he arrange to be born into a specific city in which his parents did not live? And this was written four to 500 years before he was born in Bethlehem, as noted in Micah 5.2. And it reads, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one from me, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Question three. How did he arrange his own death and specifically be crucified between two criminals? written 700 years before the crucifixion, as told in Isaiah 53. It reads, Therefore I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many, and made intercessions for the transgressors. Number four. How did he arrange to have his executors gamble for his clothing, written approximately 500 years before the events took place in Psalms 22:18, It reads, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Question five. How did he arrange to be betrayed in advance and be crucified on the exact day the Jews sacrificed a spotless lamb for their sins? And this was written 400 years before he was betrayed by Jesus. By Judas, excuse me. And John 18 says, But if is your custom for me to release to you one of these prisoners at the time of the Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Question six. How did he arrange to have the executioners break the legs of the two victims on each side of him and not his own? And this was written 500 years before the events took place in Psalms 3420 says he protected all their bones not one of them will be broken or in John 19 it says the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who was crucified with Jesus and then they broke the legs of the other but when they came to Jesus they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs and as we go into this week the Passover week right what would have happened if they had broken Jesus' legs? It had been very difficult for him to rise from the dead and walk amongst them, right? So his detail in planning and what took place is amazing. And then my last question, number seven. How did he arrange to come back to life the exact day he said he would, as in Matthew 16? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised back to life. 
They say that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Truly amazing that one man could do this. And I found a short video online that will demonstrate the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight of those 300 prophecies. So if you could roll that video. Imagine you are given a goose that lays golden eggs. Scrap that. A magical guitar. No, an enchanted hummer. And you are told that if you drive that enchanted Hummer, you will be more attracted to girls and you will be able to rocket to the moon. Now you can believe and believe and believe in that enchanted Hummer and that it will bring you the chicks and the lunar experience. But if it doesn't deliver, then it must not be true. It doesn't matter how much you believe it. If it proves to be false, it is false, right? Right. But what about the flip side? If something can be proven absolutely true to actually accomplish the amazing things it says it will do, then it must be real. Must be real. Whether you believe it or not. I guess so. You guess so? Absolutely. Let's say, for instance, Jesus Christ is the son of the one true God, the only way to God. I don't believe that. But have you weighed all the evidence? Evidence? Who needs evidence? All I need is to believe in what I believe. But believing doesn't make what you believe true. And if it's not true, what you believe can't be real. Can't be real. Oh, no. What's true is really true. That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real if his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Do you know what the probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. Now take one more Thin Mint and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile, and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind Thin Mint cookie. Got it. Take off the blindfold. Aw, nuts. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300, girl! And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. 
for me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. Because if it is true that he is the son of God, what he offers you, a new life in him, is real. Now I know it's real whether I believed it or not. It's all part of the evidence. You gotta love that catchy tune, don't you? But as you can see, the evidence is overwhelming. You and I can trust what is written in the Bible. It is God's letter to us. And I stand in confidence in front of you today saying that you are unique and I am unique. That you are created for a purpose. You are special to God. Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? I think the evidence is overwhelming. And we learned today that the mystery is now revealed. Salvation is for all. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. And again, if you've never placed your faith in the Lord, come and see me afterwards. Come and see Richard. Or talk to somebody here. Go out to lunch and have a conversation with it. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not things not seen. Where do the assurance and conviction of your faith come from? They come from knowledge. They come from evidence of the things hoped for or not seen. It is your knowledge of something that allows you to trust in it. And seeing the evidence gives your faith the confidence. So to circle back to the original question, how do I know what is true? We find the answer written in the word of God. And I love to say the uh, word Bible in the acronym for the Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. And they also say, when all else fails, read the instructions. For it is written for us here today. So let's pray. Father, just... uh, 